Good morning. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, this Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And if you're wondering uh, what that is, let me tell you. If we trace the history of Christianity from Jesus on, it goes like this. A few hundred centuries, things were, were okay. And then there began some, some theological error that crept into the church. And there began this drift, and then a little more drift, and then a little more drift, and a little more drift. Until centuries had gone by, and eventually um, we hit 12, 13, 1400s, and this group of men and women uh, simply couldn't take it anymore. And they began this groundswell going, no, no, we've got to recover the purity of the gospel. We've left the pure gospel. We need to come back to the pure gospel until one day a man named Martin Luther couldn't take it anymore. And on, on October 31st, 1517, he publicized what was known as his 95 Theses, and the Protestant Reformation, as we know it, was born. And from there, from there, the uh, division, the separation that we now know as the Catholic and the Protestant church was born. But he, here's the thing. The, the goal of the Protestant Reformation was to reform, not to divide. The, the word Protestant from the word protest, Reformation from the word reform, that it was a protest to reform. The entire goal was to reform the church, to have the entire church come back to the purity of the gospel, which is what makes the Reformation good, regrettable, and hopeful. It was good because in this recovery of the purity of the gospel, we recovered what we know as the five solas. The five solas of the Reformation, sola from the Latin word uh, alone, and to call them just simply scripture alone, uh, grace of God alone. There, there's more nuance needed in that, but we speak English, and so we'll use alone. And so if we walk through them, it's scripture alone, faith alone, glory of God alone, grace alone, through Christ alone. And, and what they mean is this, that the Bible is our highest authority, that we live for the glory of God that we are saved by grace, that we're saved through faith, and that Jesus is the only way to God. It was regrettable. It was regrettable because recovery was needed. It, it would have been better if recovery of these five solas had never been needed, and it was regrettable because division was required. It was also hopeful. Because when the church is united again, and one day the church will be united again, this side of eternity or that, she will be united again. And in her union one day, we will unite around these five solas. And so we thought it appropriate on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation to take a few weeks and to talk briefly about what it is that we will be united on 500 years, 5,000 years from now. And we're going to start with Scripture alone. So 500 years ago, during the Reformation, the, the primary question, the primary issue was one of authority. All right, who, who has ultimate authority? Where does final authority rest it was the question of whose voice 
is most authoritative? Is it the church and tradition, or is it the Bible? Whose voice is most authoritative? When they clash, who wins? And you had two primary camps, um, two extreme camps, I should say. Uh, you, you had Rome on one side, who, who said uh, that tradition is equal to the Bible. But then you had another group of extreme separatists who said, no, 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 no. Tradition is irrelevant because of the Bible. And here's the thing. They were both wrong. Equal to or irrelevant. Both are wrong. Both were wrong. The Bible is our final authority, but it is not our only authority. Now, here's the thing. I've never had one of you, no, no sojourner has ever come to me and said, hey, Brandon, you know what we need? We need a pope, man. Like, not, not you, but we'll take any of them. Just a pope. That's what we need. Never have y'all ever said that to me. Here's what you have said. Hey, hey Brandon, sometimes we, we talk about confessions and we use confessions. Why, why is that? Why do we do that? I mean, we have the Bible. Don't we need, uh, don't, don't we just not need that stuff? I, I understand and I'm sympathetic to the, to the question. Um, but here's the deal. If you have a background in church, uh, you, you have and you are a part of a tradition whether you know it or not. So if you say to me, hey, hey, listen, uh, tradition doesn't matter. You know why you say that? Your tradition says tradition doesn't matter. Tradition is an inescapable reality. Um, but it's not. It's not this stuffy... When I became a Christian and someone said the word tradition, I just oh, I cringed on the inside. Like, oh. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be beautiful. Beautiful. So let me give you a definition of um, tradition that I think might, might help. What if we thought of tradition this way? Community that stretches back centuries. What if we thought of tradition as community that stretches back centuries. And let me, uh, let me try to illustrate for you uh, how tradition is supposed to work. I have four kids, and by I, I mean my wife and I have four kids. Uh, we have four kids, and we as their parents are the final and the foundational authority, humanly speaking, in their lives. But we are not their only authority, right? They have grandparents who, as a side note, do not exercise that authority ever. My eight-year-old daughter, my eight-year-old daughter's like, hey, look, Daddy, um, when we're at Mimi and Pop's house, they're in charge, not you. Oh, really? Why is that? Because they can be Cheetos for breakfast. <laughs> True story. Not okay. They're going to be here at 11. I'll say the same thing again. <laughs> Passive aggressive. I prefer not confrontation. I prefer sermons, and that's how I do it. Um, <laughs> They, they also have a parish. They have a parish who expect to help us raise our kids. But here's the point. All other authorities in their life are to be authorities that are supplemental and reinforce the teaching and instruction of us, their final authority. So tradition, here's what it's meant to do. It's meant to reinforce the teaching of the Bible so that... So that, just like, so that we as parents are the loudest voices in our kids' lives. So that the Bible is the loudest voice in our lives. 
But the problem was in the years leading up to 1517, the loudest voice in the church was no longer the Bible. It was men who said, when the Bible and tradition clash, the tradition wins. Scripture alone was never about ignoring tradition. It was about putting it in its right order so that the Bible can be the loudest voice in our life and in the church's life. And if the Bible is meant to be the loudest voice, we need to know what it is and what it does. So let's go 2 Timothy 3. We're going to start in verse 10, draw some context in before we get to verse 14. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. This is a guy named Paul writing to a guy named Timothy, who he knew, had a close relationship with, saying, listen, you, you know me. Like, you know my life. You know who I am. You know my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So if we go back into the book of Acts, we can find uh, these three events that Paul is referencing here. And if I could just paraphrase them, here's what happened. He got drugged out of a city. He threatened to get stoned, and then he got stoned. That's what happened. Paul, this author of the scriptures, because of his courage and boldness and his faith, because of these things that he just listed, his life, my teaching, conduct, aim in life, because the aim of his life, he gets drug out of a city, and he gets stones fired at him. But this was not a one-off event. These were not one-off events. It was the pattern of Paul's life, but not just his life. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will get, will be persecuted. And Paul's life is a representative life of ours. It rep, it, it, it's the pattern of his life will be the pattern of our life. Now, the, the reality is that for a lot of us, um, because of where we live, and I say a lot, I, I, I don't assume everybody in this room is from the States. Some of us might have family back in Egypt. Some of us might have family in parts of the world where stoning is a real thing. Most of us in this room know uh, being stoned is not an immediate threat to us. Um, but losing our job is. Uh, but being ranked uh, in the bottom third because we refuse to leave Houston is. There, there are um, not necessarily life and death persecutions, but there are real persecutions nonetheless waiting for us. Let's keep reading. While, verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul's life and his suffering is a model for you. Why? Why, why do you need to know that? Because there are imposters out there. There are imposters out there. What's an imposter? In the context that Paul is referencing, it's these false teachers, these imposters that would open the Bible and abuse the Bible. That would open it up and abuse it. 
And it wasn't just for them, it's for us today, that if someone were to open up the Bible, open it up, look you in the eyes and say, God does not want you to suffer. In fact, what he wants, rich. He wants cash for you, baby. He wants it to flow. Like so much that when you go to Waterburg, you pay with a hundred and drive off. That's what he wants. Imposter. That's somebody opening the Bible, speaking on behalf of the author here, Paul, and having a different message than Paul. It's an imposter. Imposters prey on the suffering, and what they do is they use the Bible to amplify their voice. They open up the Bible, and they amplify it. I mean, use the Bible to amplify their voice that they might say what they think you want to hear. And here's what tradition does. Tradition helps us recognize imposters today. So if uh, someone out there were to say, um, hey, you can have your best life now, in theory. Um, <laughs> and we have no tradition. You know what it is? It, it's mine and your. It's, it's, it's my, my interpretation of the Bible against his. But if we have tradition, that's not true anymore. It's his interpretation of the Bible against 2,000 years of church history. It's his interpretation of the New Testament writings of Paul against 2,000 years of church history. Church history helps us be able to see and expose those who abuse the Bible today. Paul does not think, Paul does not think, hey, there's the Bible, go, go. you're free to read it any way that you want to. That's what imposters do. Read it any way they want to. Paul sees a specific way that we are to read and interpret the Bible, and now he starts getting there. Verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. The word whom there, it's plural. That Timothy had these tutors in his life. And Paul is saying, hey, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. And remember whom you learned it from. These tutors in your life, remember them. And what did tutors do in his life? Verse 15, and how from childhood, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. At the tutors in Timothy's life, they took him to the Bible. And what Paul calls the Bible here, I think, is fascinating. Fascinating. That the, this phrase, holy writings, that, that would have been shorthand for the Old Testament. They would have known holy writings equals Old Testament. But you, you notice it's, it's translated sacred here. Let me tell you why. Paul doesn't use the common word for holy. That's why it's translated sacred, trying to draw out in English what Paul is really saying. The word that he used, it, it can be translated holy, but you want to know its more common translation, what its normal translation was? Temple. Temple. Here's what, here's what I think Paul is doing. I think Paul, in using this word, he is begging us. I think begging us 
to use our imagination. Not, not to imagine things that aren't true, but to use our imagination to see the richness and the beauty of the Bible the way that Paul is describing it. That in the Old Testament, there was a temple, and this temple was where God dwelt. And the temple, to simplify it, had outer courts and it had the Holy of Holies. The outer courts were where the people could come. The Holy of Holies, that's where God came and dwelt. And the word that Paul uses here is the word for the outer courts. Scripture, like he's saying, it's not the Holy of Holies. Jesus is. But, but in using this imagery, in using this imagery, I think, I think he's begging us to see this. That when you open up, or open up, uh, but however you open up, when you open up the scriptures and you enter in, it's like you're entering into the temple courts. It's like you're coming to the place where the Holy of Holies is. It's your gateway. And as you pass through, as you would pass through the temple courts to get to the Holy of Holies, you pass through the scriptures to get to Jesus. So why that imagery? Let's keep reading. Because the sacred writings, the ones that, the ones which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So why does it matter that we see the Bible this way? Because what the Bible does is it grabs your hand and it walks you to Jesus. The Bible becomes this gateway to Christ. And the word wise it makes you wise. It's a passive verb, which means when you open up the scriptures, the Bible does something to you. It does something to you. So if you're worried, like, I don't understand, so I can't read, don't, don't buy that. Just read. Just open up and read. Don't, don't worry if you can't figure out all the nuance or you don't know how it all fits together yet. Just open it up and read and let the Bible do to you what the Bible does. Draw you near to Jesus. The Bible is meant to make Jesus the loudest voice in your life, which is why it's so, so profoundly important that as a follower of Jesus, you are in the Bible consistently. Because here's the, here's the deal. You, you, want, you want to know the most likely imposter in my life? It, it's not somebody who... Um, it's not one of our false teachers out there. That's not the most likely imposter in my life. Most likely imposter in my life, it's me. It's me. Because if I'm, not, if I'm not consistently engaged in what the scriptures have to say, I'm not listening to the voice of Jesus, which when things are good, it, I mean, it's a big deal, but it doesn't feel like a big deal. But you wait till things go bad. You wait till life goes south. You, you wait till it's your turn to get a call and say, um, hey, listen, that thing we thought that was just no big deal, actually, it's stage three and we need you to the hospital. You, you wait till you get that call. And I know because the majority of us in this room are in our 20s and 30s, that call feels foreign to us. But I assure you, it is not that far off. And when that happens, you watch how easy it is to think things like, this isn't fair. Like, God, this isn't fair. If you loved me, God, why is this happening? It's not fair. That, that's me listening to me. Or 
I'm single. And I'm lonely. And there's this guy, this girl right over there that, man, like I, I know, I, I know if I pursue them, if I'm pursued by them, I, I know. Uh, I, I know the end result. I know the end result is I drift away from Jesus. I, I know that. I know that, but surely God wouldn't want me to be lonely. Like, sure, that's not what he wants. Obviously, God has put this person over here to meet my lonely needs. That's me listening to me. The most likely imposter in my life is me. If I'm the loudest voice in my life when I open the Bible, I go to the Bible looking for reinforcements. But if the Bible is about Jesus, and my heart longs for him to be the loudest voice in my life, I can go to the Bible, I can open it up, and I can listen. And the Bible being a story of Jesus is exactly how Jesus understood the Bible. That's why in Luke 24, 44, he said then, he's talking to, the, to, to his disciples, then he said it to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, must be fulfilled. In Jesus' day, uh, when, they, uh, when they opened up the scriptures, they had them in three categories. You, you have any guess what they are? I'll tell you what they are. Law of Moses, prophets, Psalms. Jesus is saying here, his point here, the entirety of the Bible, it's the story of me. And when those guys are writing, they're writing about me. They're writing about me, which is why Sinclair Ferguson, brilliant theologian with this wonderful accent that I won't even try to do, uh, said, the scriptures do not tell us everything about everything. They provide no instruction about computer programming, amen, or about how to best organize a library. I'll add, what job should I take? Who should I marry? Should I do private, public, or homeschool for my kids? So what do they tell us? St. Clair Ferguson, everything I need to learn in order to live to the glory of God and enjoy him forever, I will find in the application of Scripture. The Bible points the way to God and shows us how to live life in light of him, which is why Paul can say, they make you wise to salvation, the salvation that Jesus saw as the central thread of the Bible. That's why he kept going in Luke. It says, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That line we're going to gloss over. It takes a whole sermon to address that one. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now when Jesus opens the Bible, he sees it as the story of the Christ that would suffer, die, be resurrected, and that forgiveness is yours. Yours in him, through him, because of him, that it's yours and it's here, which means that the Bible is not about trivial things in my life that don't matter. And listen, I, I know, I, I know nothing that's in your life feels trivial right now. I, I know that nothing in my life feels trivial right now. 
Like what job should I or should I not? It doesn't feel trivial right now. 10,000 years from now, it will. Which means the Bible is not captive to today. It doesn't just speak to the things in my life of today, which is glorious, glorious, glorious good news, that it speaks about the one thing that eternally does matter. One thing that eternally does matter. And Jesus in this verse is saying that that one thing is this big, beautiful story. Joel B. Green, one commentator, looked at this verse and said, if one were to think that the stories of Israel, Jesus, and the early church, think New Testament, as in some sense distinct. He's saying that if, if one were to look at the Bible and go, you know what, you've got Israel over here, Jesus here, New Testament here, and those are, those are they're three separate. They're distinct. In these verses, in these verses, one would find the seam wherein they are sewn together into one cloth. In these verses, you find where, they, where they, they're sewn together and make up one cloth. The Bible is the story of the redemption of Christ for all nations. Which means we don't have to simply go to it for moral instruction and we don't simply ignore the reality that it is a missionary document to quote a man named Steve Timmis. It's a beautiful missionary document, which when we see this, changes the way that we read verses 16 and 17 back in Timothy. It says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's got a divine origin to reveal the divine Son and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training. For cor- and for training in righteousness. Now pause. It, it's easy to read this verse and, and read them like this. Um, that the, what the Bible does is it's, it's profitable um, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But if I could be a Greek nerd uh, for a moment, um, that, that's grammatically not what's going on here. Grammatically, the way that this is put together and the way it's linked together, it's like this. That what the Bible does is it's for teaching in righteousness, reproof in righteousness, correction in righteousness, and training in righteousness. Which means everything that the Bible has to say about you is about forming the righteousness of Christ in you. But taking the righteousness that is in Christ, forming it in you. It's teaching, that's what it's for. It's correction, that's what it's for. It's reproof, that's what it's for. It's training, that's what it's for. Forming the life of Christ in you. Why? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That the Bible is a story of a God on mission who creates a people to live on mission. And the Bible is not simply just a story about who you are, but what you're to do. That we're equipped for every good work. So what is Scripture alone about? Sola Scriptura. What's what's it about? It's on making sure the loudest voice in your life, it's not you, it's not an imposter, it's the Bible. And why the Bible? So that the loudest voice in your life would be Jesus. It's about, the, it's about making sure that the Bible's clarified so the voice of Jesus can be 
amplified. And the degree to which we lean into tradition around here is so that we can lean into our tradition to help us clarify what the Bible says so that in our community, in our church, the voice of Jesus would be amplified so that we, we might be formed in the people Jesus wants us to be, who we're saved into and what we're sent out to do. Saved into the life of Christ, sent out to display the glory of Christ. We have a missionary God who creates a missionary people with a missionary document. And the highest authority in your life will always have the loudest voice. And if we as a church, if we as a community, if we as a people embrace Scripture alone, we make Jesus the loudest voice in our life, and we can be the people Jesus has created us to be. Let's pray. Father, I, I, uh, I, I do pray that you would take the words of the sermon. I, I, I do um, I pray that you would let us see the highest authority in our life. We'll always have the loudest voice in our life. May that highest authority be the Bible so that Jesus can have the loudest voice in our life. And may where we have drifted, may you correct us. Where we are off, may you correct us. May, may we not be uh, so bold or so arrogant as to think that we have uh, the one interpretive interpretation of the Bible that is truly infallible. That's silly. So would you Give us grace for one another. Would you draw us into one another? That we might be the people Jesus has created us to be. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh, uh, I confess right now, as this sermon ends, I'm, I'm realizing that we're taking five weeks, 30 minutes a piece to talk about these five beautiful, beautiful, rich things, thinking we need hours to talk about this. Like we need hours to take deep dives into what sola scriptura means. I mean, for us to, like, I think next week is sola de gloria, glory of God alone. Like, asking the Lord in this moment to magnify the words that we speak, that we might capture the richness of what it is that, that happened 500 years ago and how we get to live in light of it. But this week, in light of our conversation around tradition in the Bible, as we come to the communion table, I thought this might be an appropriate week um, to pause, to pause from our standard uh, communion liturgy and read from our tradition, read from our beautiful, long tradition on first what we call sacraments and then from there specifically about communion. From the Westminster Confession, it says, sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenants of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them in the service of God in Christ according to his 
word and about communion. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacraments of his body and blood, called the, Lord, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church until the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their farther engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. I don't find that boring at all. This communion table is this table where God communes with his children. There's this beautiful mystery happening where a couple thousand years ago he sat around with some, some guys and he held up this bread and he held up this cup and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we come, as we take the bread and we take the cup, we receive Christ and his benefits. That by, by faith, our faith is nourished and we get this beautiful heavenly foretaste. And we get it now. Which is why we pray week in and week out that as we come to the table, we pray to the Lord with one voice. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive the sacraments as a sign and seal of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Let me pray. Father, Heavenly Father, thank you for the bread and for this cup. Would you, in your glorious mercy, enable us to eat and drink by faith? Would you nourish us and sustain us? And we might be confirmed into the image of his self-giving love. Amen.